The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Welcome to our Rethinking Democracy in an Age of Pandemic series and to this workshop on marginalized groups. My name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm the director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, our research institute in the arts and humanities here in Dublin. And I'm delighted to be co-hosting at this event with uh, my counterpart in New York, Professor Eileen Galuli, who's the director of the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities at, at Columbia. Um, it's always a pleasure uh, to welcome you, uh, those of you who are uh, our Zoom attendees. So college in, colleagues in the Zoom room come from Trinity, Columbia, the universities of Sao Paulo, Virginia, Bielestock, Utrecht, JNU and Ambedkar in uh, uh, Delhi and, and further afield as well. We're joined by journalists, authors, arts practitioners, as well as representatives from the world of policymaking, enterprise, civic society and cultural organisations. Uh, we're also delighted to welcome those of you who are tuning in on uh, Facebook uh, and especially using the Irish Central platform. It's lovely to be partnering to be partnering uh, with Irish uh, Central uh, today. So this is the second of a special five-part workshop series organized by the Hub and the Heyman in response to COVID-19. If you missed the first workshop uh, on nations and borders, it's available as a podcast on the Trinity Long Room Hub and uh, website uh, and the Heyman website. Our workshop series has been developed out of a longer partnership between the two institutions, including an 18-month Global Humanities Institute on the crisis of democracy that actually uh, had been funded uh, through the Consortium of Humanities Centres and Institutes by the uh, Mellon Foundation. And more recently, uh, the Hub, the Heyman, and a wider uh, consortium have also got together to apply for further funding on participatory and deliberative uh, democracy. Uh, that grouping is called Isagoria, and it's lovely that some of our Isagoria partners are with us today. Um, this is our second workshop, as I said. Now, last week we had a few technical issues, or I had a few technical issues. Hopefully, um, uh, the Wi-Fi will behave itself uh, this afternoon, but if it doesn't, we'll carry on regardless. And my deep thanks to Eileen Galuli for taking over last week when my Wi-Fi crashed. Um, let me just say a quick word about the topic uh, and the importance of running this series of workshops on rethinking uh, democracy. Life as we know it has changed um, uh, in a matter uh, of weeks and this series asks what does COVID-19 mean for democracy in the world today? Uh, this afternoon, this morning, uh, we want to focus on what it means for those on the margins of our society. Uh, these people who are often the most vulnerable to the virus. We need to understand what the pandemic might mean for these populations, both in the short term and in the longer term, and what consequences this has uh, for democracy. 
And as we all think about what the post-COVID-19 world might look like, we need to consider how this can be an opportunity to change, to change attitudes, to implement reform and build better and more inclusive societies, to hit the reset button on the world and make a, the world a place that we all want to live in. Now, our format today, we've tweaked it a little bit since last week. We still have three speakers, but we're actually going to have a panel discussion with uh, three speakers rather than two speakers and a moderator. And we've invited each of our speakers to uh, talk for up to nine minutes. And then it's going to be over to you, the participants in the Zoom room and our audience on Facebook. And we really do want you to participate. If you're in the Zoom room, you can join the conversation in two ways. Firstly, you could raise your digital hand. Uh, that's a feature in Zoom. If you click uh, on, the icon, on the icon labeled participants and then click uh, the raise hand uh, uh, button, uh, it should allow you to raise your hand and then I will call on you uh, and you'll be unmuted at that point. So we'll actually unmute you. There won't be uh, any video. The other way you can submit your questions is through the discussion and using the Q&A function on your screen. And then I'll read your question out for you. But we really want to try and make this as interactive as possible. So please um, do keep those questions coming. If you're on Facebook, please post your questions in the comments and we'll be collecting those um, again. Uh, we'll read them out on your behalf. It's lovely if you say something about who you are and where you are, as well as asking a, a, a question. We're also aware we've lots of experts in the Zoom room. And again, if technology allows, we might try and call on you uh, as appropriate. If this happens, Francesca will invite you to unmute yourself. And if it's a longer discussion, we'll bring you onto the virtual panel. As usual, we want everybody to engage uh, uh, in social media, so please tweet uh, using the handles at TLRHub and at SOF Heyman. So uh, we'll put those uh, in the uh, uh, chat function so you can see. Or, uh, 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 so again, just to remind you, it's at TLRHub and at SOF Heyman and use the hashtag uh, HubMatters. Now to our three fabulous speakers this afternoon. And I'm so grateful uh, uh, to all three of them for taking time out at a, such an, a busy moment. Our first speaker this afternoon is Professor Rosemary Byrne, who is Professor of Legal Studies at NYU Abu Dhabi, formerly of Trinity. Uh, Rosemary was very involved in our Global Humanities Institute on the Crisis of Democracy. Um, she has served as a Human Rights Commissioner for the Irish Human Rights Commission, which was established in the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement and was chair of the Scientific Committee of the EU Fundamental uh, Rights uh, Agency. So Rosemary, thank you very much indeed um, uh, for uh, agreeing to be part of our panel. I'm going to introduce our other two panelists, uh, but we will start with Rosemary in just a second. Our second speaker this afternoon is Professor Roseanne Kenny. Uh, Roseanne is the Chair of Medical Gerontology at Trinity. She's just been awarded an Irish Research Council and Health Research Board grant to explore the impact of COVID-19 policies on mental and physical health of older adults. Congratulations, uh, Roseanne. Um, she's also the founder and director of the MISA, a large 
Clinical Research Institute for Aging at St James's Hospital in Dublin and the founding principal investigator of the Irish Longitudinal uh, Study on Aging, which we know as TILDA. So again, Roseanne, thank you very much for being with us uh, today. Our third speaker is uh, uh, Professor uh, Vincent uh, Sheraldi, who is a senior research scientist at the Columbia School of Social Work and co-director of the Columbia Justice Lab. Uh, Vinny founded the Justice Policy Institute think tank and was formerly the commissioner of the New York City Department uh, of Probation and senior policy advisor to the New York City Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. So we really are, again, delighted, uh, uh, Vinny, uh, that you're uh, with us. So thanks to uh, our panelists and maybe without further ado, if we could turn uh, to Rosemary Byrne. So Rosemary, over to you, please. Thank you and thank you Jane for the warm welcome. This is the first virtual uh, seminar that I've done and I've been warned by colleagues that you can't really speak with your hands which for me is a, a real challenge but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best uh, and will apologize in advance if my, my waving hands uh, disrupt people's screens. Uh, but I, I'm really pleased to be actually talking about marginalization in the context of COVID, uh, because if you think about the impact that the virus has had, um, the main voices within my field, within human rights, have really focused on what the implications are for marginalized communities. So if you look at the first main statement coming out from Filippo Grandi and Michelle Bachelet, uh, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and Human Rights, respectively, they came out with a really powerful joint statement. And their, their focus was on those individuals that are, quote, far from the levers of political power. And I think, Jane, you, you really flagged this when you started the discussion, is that uh, what we're talking about are individuals whose lived experience is very far from being incorporated or driving political choices. Uh, and so, you know, COVID has not only affected them, but it's brought them into the kind of our, our radar uh, in, in a very different way. And I think when, when Bachelet and Grandi uh, issued this statement to the international community, uh, they, they made a, a comment that I think is, is very common whenever there's a crisis that affects rights, is that the virus will undoubtedly test our principles, our values, and shared humanity. And most crises do test those kinds of fundamental uh, areas of the, of the human experience. Uh, and usually what happens is you have a call for solidarity, uh, whether it be moral, political, or social, uh, sometimes legal, where you look at what your duties are towards others. Uh, but by and large, even when you have it within, say, a highly developed regional governance system that comparatively, although it's weak, the European Union is, solidarity is weakly defined, it has a short shelf life, uh, and it's often very disappointing when translated into real hard commitments by states. Um, so in a way, we have this sort of antiquated approach uh, to the whole issue of COVID and marginalized communities, but it's also being superseded by another message. And that's what I, I want to explore, what it is that's distinctive. Uh, because I think the common uh, response when you look at the experience of COVID on uh, marginalized communities is precisely what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, mentioned just this week, uh, went back in her own community uh, in the Bronx, is she observed that the crisis isn't really creating new problems, it's just pouring gasoline on our existing ones. And the problems 
uh, of marginalized communities uh, seem eternal, uh, whether they're on the grassroots or global levels. Uh, you have problems around uh, homelessness. Uh, you've got 1.8 billion people uh, in the world uh, that are not adequately sheltered both emergency shelters, informal settlements, all that have problems related to, to a gross overcrowding and a, a absence of access to, to water and sanitation. Long before uh, the virus uh, became a pandemic, UNICEF and the World Health Organization were reminding states that three billion people like, lack basic access to hand-washing facilities. And then there's just the general economic deprivation that we see more acutely now. Uh, but there are 4 billion people in the world as we sort of spiral into this economic crisis that don't have basic social protections. So what is striking and why I'm speaking, what we all see on our various national and grassroots local levels is the scale on a global level of the challenges that affect marginalized populations. But in thinking about really sort of marginalization and, and going back to uh, the idea that it's sort of just exacerbating existing problems, I mean, it's certainly clear that the pandemic itself is highlighting what we, we choose generally to ignore. I think, you know, it's, there was an event this week that was very telling that in Geneva, a city that one associates with expensive watches and luxury, uh, had uh, literally a line a kilometer long with 2,200 people uh, lining up, uh, waiting three hours to receive a small bag of food worth 19 euros. Uh, and the population referred to in Geneva as the invisible, the invisibles, uh, certainly was far from that. But it shows that indeed there are areas or pockets of our communities that are ignored or that we choose not to see. I think another kind of phenomenon that's come out that again is a worsening of what already exists are these attacks with respect to uh, xenophobic tax, scapegoating of people uh, of others within our community. Uh, so you've got you know, Chinese and other A Asians being attacked, hate speech in Europe against the Roma. Um, you have hate speech like, likewise in North America against Hispanics, Muslims in India, East African and Asians in the Middle East, it just goes on. Uh, there's a, a very interesting article by Jedwab and his colleagues uh, that looks at this whole kind of link between pandemics and the kind of strategic space that it opens for uh, persecuting uh, other groups and goes way back to the 14th century looking at the uh, treatment of the Jews during the Black Death. So while it's hardly anything new, we're certainly seeing that COVID has given really a ripe opportunity for this uh, to gain ground. It's also, and I think interestingly, calling out our hypocrisies. Uh, and the celebration and recognition of what is nothing short than heroic um, uh, contribution on the front lines is increasingly being countered, or not countered, but perhaps conditioned uh, by those frontline workers who see their role as quite as, as essential workers as really being in many ways 
forced as it is essential to work, uh, given the social precarity of the, of the kinds of jobs uh, that carers and those that provide various support services within our communities offer. Uh, and you see just uh, today, Sujatha Gilda writing in the New York Times, qualifies the fact indeed saying she is a conductor um, uh, for, for on the subways saying we're not essential workers but in light of the deaths of those amongst her colleagues we're sacrificial workers so i think while you know the realities in society of those of illegals those without papers of uh, individuals who are victims of xenophobic tax or who are uh, in precarious jobs uh, and the widespread hypocrisy that accompanies the way that we discuss these issues all are not really particularly new, uh, but they're manifesting themselves in a distinctive way, which is why I think to, to, to sort of come to grips with the implications of COVID, I think it's important to, to look a bit more closely at the nature uh, of the pandemic uh, and the forces that have really um, unleashed its spread. And so I just want you to kind of hang with me for just a minute as I think about the pandemic as really being part of these broader forces uh, of, of globalization, departing from issues you know, that a human rights lawyer speaks about, the right to life, what you need to support that right, shelter, access to quality health care, testing, social protection, sick leave, all of those basic tangible issues. And I want to step back and think about um, COVID as part of these broader forces of globalization, that it's transmitted with accelerated speed, as we've all witnessed in just a matter of weeks across borders. It accentuates in many ways the, the deep fault lines in society that we're already well familiar with. And the last point that I think is really critical with COVID is it heightens our interconnectedness. And it heightens it in a way that is both lethal and I'll argue, I think, in the final um, uh, few minutes, uh, and perhaps promising in terms of the kinds of reforms uh, that it might bring. And I want to sort of highlight that interconnectedness in and of itself is, you know, that's commonplace. We can think about pressing environmental issues as being yet another example. But the international environmental challenges or threats are really of a different nature compared to the intensity and the speed with which COVID is, is, is uh, being transmitted and challenging our societies in a very fundamental way. Uh, so when we talk about solidarity and the way that I began this talk within the kind of human rights sense that we owe obligations as we're all sort of part of the human family, this is a very different kind of solidarity. I, I prefer to think of it as kind of a survival solidarity. You know, it's imposed upon us because if you look at the response, and I think this brings us back to what really struck me with the approach of Bachelet and Grandi when they were speaking for the first time in a powerful joint voice about COVID and the challenges that it opposes, that it poses for those in, in marginalized communities. And it said that with our response to this epidemic, it has to encompass and in fact focus on those whom society often neglects and relegates to a lesser status, otherwise it will fail. 
And I think it's that last point that is really critical when you think about the relationship of COVID to what's happening uh, uh, in the world, uh, that there is an urgency to actually engage in a different way with the challenges and issues that we have conveniently ignored or perhaps with a bit of discomfort, but nonetheless, package and engage with with the hypocrisy uh, that has been really sort of unveiled and exposed as this uh, crisis has unfolded. So just to, to wind up, what I think this might mean in an optimistic, perhaps, uh, perhaps a bit unrealistic, as most of what we aspire for when you work in human rights um, might be uh, realized in increments, but rarely in its entirety. But in a best case scenario, does urgency require a raising of the floor of social and economic rights beyond the you know, obligation perhaps felt by some to raise wages and have better protection for those frontline workers because we all benefit indirectly from that. But what about housing uh, for migrants? Think about the, the uh, risk of contamination or those in institutionalized uh, facilities and the need to actually raise standards if you want to be able to provide a genuine uh, uh, environment uh, where social distancing, which at this stage is one of the, the uh, main routes to controlling um, the pandemic, uh, well, then you're going to have to see uh, uh, different kinds of guidelines. And you've already seen in, in Bahrain, in the Gulf, uh, you see introdu the introduction of legislation uh, that is requiring that housing allow for three meters distance between inhabitants. You know, something that has already been codified in the law. And I think we might, in an optimistic way, not see a huge sort of reform of economic and social uh, policies, but we may actually see that in the area of housing, in the area of sanitation, uh, and I think one could also say, and one can hope, uh, in access to health, the quality of public health services, access to medication and equipment, all of these kinds of issues, we may see incremental improvements simply because when we now talk about solidarity, we're no longer calling on people to rise to the moral occasion, but rather what we're calling upon them to do is to act in a way that is prudent and indeed their survival may depend on it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rosemary. Uh, that was absolutely fabulous and a lot of very profound insights there. And you end on quite a hopeful note. So, you know, a lot to think about. If we could turn now uh, to uh, Roseanne Kenny, please, Roseanne, over to you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Rosemary. You've set the scene beautifully for what I'm going to speak to, which is um, uh, how the pandemic has, has affected older persons globally. And, and I just want to say to the audience that this is pertinent to you. The one certain thing is that you will be part of this cohort. And if you're not, you won't be around to know about it. So this is relevant to everyone listening. Since the mid 1800s, we've been living year on year longer. Um, su such that each decade, that cohort lives on average 2.5 years longer. And it looks like that trajectory is continued, is, is, is going to continue into the near future, despite diabetes and obesity, etc. So bear that in mind, this is pertinent to you. The demography is changing dramatically. Already we have seen the number of people globally over the age of 65 outstrip those under the age of five. 
And, and, and I want to kind of reflect in the context of marginalization on when we first got some signals that this was important for the older age, for older persons, and then when we started to maybe pay even slight attention to those warning signals. And way back in early January, there was a detailed report from the Chinese Center of Disease Control. And it clearly highlighted that older age was the most significant risk factor for severe complications and death from COVID. Now at that stage, of course, um, COVID was in its infancy in Europe, in the US and in Canada. Roll on to the end of March, for example, in Spain, and I'm going to give you a couple of case scenarios to, to set the context of how we have addressed marginalization in our older citizens. End of March, the army were called in to a nursing home in Madrid to disinfect the nursing home. And there they found abandoned dead bodies in beds of residents. Many of you will recall this atrocious circumstance. Now, this was home for these residents. Some had been there for six years and longer. So that was Madrid. That was end of March, three months after we got the first signals from the Chinese. In late April in Montreal, again, authorities were called in to a residence where they found residents, patients, left soiled, unfed, dehydrated. There had been 31 deaths there in the previous two to three weeks and the caregivers had fled. They were frightened, they were overwhelmed by work. They had left the residence. Um, another atrocious example in this day and age of attitudes towards that particular sector. It took until the 29th of April in the US for official systematic recording of deaths in the nursing home sector. Globally, somewhere in the region of 45 to 60% of all deaths in relation to COVID have been in the nursing home sector. And in Ireland, our figure is 54% at the moment. The US isn't the only country which hadn't actually documented COVID deaths in the nursing home sector from get-go. Uh, this was the case also in the UK and in Ireland and in many European countries. The LSE wrote recently that reporting of deaths in England are inadequate and likely to give false assurance that numbers are significantly lower than reality. And we can ask ourselves why? Why was it deemed acceptable that that particular cohort should not be documented? with respect to the pandemic. To take a step back and try and understand why do people go into nursing homes? Why will we maybe go into a nursing home someday or require that level of care? Four to 5% of people over 65 in the US and in Ireland and in many other countries are in a nursing home sector or a significant assisted care home sector requiring significant care. That's 1.5 million people in the US and almost 30,000 people in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland. 
Um, and, and the reasons are that, that, that people acquire multiple comorbidities, either physical or mental. So um, it, diseases such as heart disease, dementia, of course, strokes, uh, falls, fractures, and, and, and those diseases or disorders disable people so that, that generally speaking, residents in nursing homes aren't um, able to maybe prepare meals or so, in some cases eat, eat independently, uh, feed themselves independently, bath, dress, toilet, manage medications or, or mobilize without assistance. That's why people require that level of care. It's really unusual for someone to volunteer or to, to request to go into a nursing home care. And in 35 years of clinical practice in medical gerontology, I've had two patients who requested to go into a nursing home who I didn't think required that le level of care, but they were lonely and, and, and perceived that they required that level of social engagement. Very unusual. So the, the, because of the complex comorbidities, these are a skilled, Nurse, nursing workforce, or certainly healthcare workforce, and yet they're probably the worst paid in our healthcare system, and certainly one of the least valued. And that was, that was unmasked by this pandemic, um, where uh, low, lowly paid healthcare workers um, were, were, had opportunities to get better pay elsewhere, like in supermarkets. And that was one of the issues in Ireland, that many actually moved into other sectors for better resource where, where they, when they could. Why did we, we get this, this, this issue? Well, first of all, the infrastructure in many of the facilities wasn't appropriate for infection control, and there was no planning in advance, many months in advance, as there was in the acute care sector, to ensure that there was appropriate infection con control. Um, so without rigorous infection control, you had, in many cases, um, migrant workers who were working, living in, in clusters, coming into the nursing home, maybe infected with COVID, no screening was, was taking place on time, no proper PPE, etc. Um, patients much iller, requiring more intensive nursing care skills, which, which weren't available. Many of these homes are in the private sector, so there wasn't absolute clear clinical governance that was, hap was happening on, on, a, on a wide scale. And once, in, once uh, screening started then it became apparent who was and wasn't infected or who had been in contact that further significantly reduced staff numbers and and of course the reduction in staff numbers even in contacts meant that uh, it was it was very difficult to look after now iller patients so so it was it was a catastrophe awaiting to happen and as rosemary has said it really unmasked the fragility of this whole sector it was borderline to begin with so that was coupled then with, with lockdown. So the solution was we'll lock everything down. And, and, and bar relatives, siblings, spouses, often older themselves, children, etc., from visiting. And this has been the case now for over eight weeks in, in some nursing home facilities. And some, some of the residents are not fluent with technology. We're using technology for today, but many of these residents are not fluent. So they're dependent on care staff for short windows of opportunity to engage with their loved ones. And that's very hard pressed, busy, overstretched care staff. 
So that doesn't often happen. And then that's compounded by guilt, anguish and worry, um, which is felt by, by, their, by their loved ones. And, and poor communication, because when you're really busy, you don't have time to answer the phone all of the times and engage and communicate. So, so, so the, the hard-pressed staff have, have, have not been able to rise to the challenge of this very fragile uh, infrastructure. Uh, Monique Pelletier, who is a former Minister for Women, I think put it really well um, in a recent op-ed in Le Monde, where she criticised the incomprehensible and inhumane way that residents in some retreat homes were being treated. It's taken hundreds of deaths in France for persons, in front, uh, for persons who have died from COVID in these establishments. Um, before people in France woke up to show some interest in those rest homes. So our constitution is very clear. We're held equal before the law. This means that the state cannot unjustly, unreasonably, or arbitrarily discriminate between citizens. It can't be, we can't be treated as inferior or superior based on ethnicity, racial, race, social, and religious backgrounds. The constitution specifically recognizes the right to life. Your right to life means the right to have nature take its course, and to die a natural death, but it does not mean the right to have life terminated or death accelerated. So wh why has this happened? Why, why has, have we enabled this in our society? And I, I put it to you that we are, we're very ageist and we're fearful ourselves of aging. And because of our fear, we, we block out the possibility that I started with. We're all going, this is going to happen to everybody. This is our responsibility for ourselves. Ageism is a, a, a stereotypes, prejudices, discrimination towards people based on age. It's the commonest ism. One in three people in Europe experience ageism. And we see it all the time in cultural, in our institutions, on a personal level, etc. And the problem is, and this has happened with this pandemic, people and our, our children in our society will internalize ageism. They'll internalize negative perceptions of what has happened through media, etc. And we know from a research perspective that actually shortens our lifespan by seven years. If you have negative perceptions of how you're aging, you will live seven years less than, those, than a person who's got a positive attitude to aging and positive perceptions of how they age. However, I too want to end on a more positive note because I think this has unmasked ageism at society and at policy level and, and, and indeed within individuals and particularly within our media. But this was previously an invisible sector and you know it was really hard to get visibility in this sector. Uh, we now have an opportunity for change. This, this is this pandemic, it's very likely we will experience more and this is the cohort and as, as other marginalized groups are who will most be subject to severe consequences from these. So we need to, we need more research to identify what's the best policy and practice for, for individual countries. We need much better education across all sectors. Our education and training with respect to aging is poor in our third level uh, institutions. And this is an opportunity now to, to reflect on that. Um, and to ensure that the rights of citizens to feel equal in our society are met, whatever 
their needs. And I was very glad to end on a note, a more, even more positive note, that the Taoiseach, uh, who is himself a medical um, physician, and who, who's doing a session a week uh, on the front line, uh, stated on Friday night that we will review our entire care sector from housing through to nursing home care and, and our policy with respect to the aging sector in Ireland. And that's very welcome. And frankly, it can't come quickly enough. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Roseanne. I mean, absolutely, what a compelling case study you've given us there. And, and as you say, maybe there is a silver lining um, and that's something that obviously we want to hold our government to account. But on a very personal note, I'm, the reason I'm here in Donegal is I'm cocooning and even that language is problematic. My 85-year-old mother, she was so delighted today she could actually get in her car and drive to the podiatrist. You know, that was, if she hadn't been out of the you know, from our immediate neighborhood for two months. You know, she came back full of the joys of the countryside. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, as you say, it's our story. It's, and it's our, we, you know, we have to take ownership. So thank you very, very much indeed. If we could turn now to our third speaker, uh, Vinny, over to you, I think for another um, extraordinarily um, moving case study, but uh, please, the floor is yours. Thank you. Those were really two powerful presentations, and I'm honored to be on with you all. Are you hearing me okay? Good. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, probation and parole in, uh, in the face of the COVID epidemic. Um, uh, but I'm going to try to make three different points during the course of what I'm saying. One is just to talk about uh, incarceration, prisons, and jails as a uniquely uh, bad place uh, for both infection and also the spread of the virus uh, back out into communities. Uh, go into a little about probation and parole as a sort of understudied, under philanthropized, under advocated portion of the system, even though it's the biggest portion of the system. Uh, and I feel like that we ignore it at our peril. And then finally talk about the, the mixture of all of that uh, with the current pandemic. So just started a little about prisons and, and, and jails first, and I'm gonna do this through a, a US lens, although I'll try, to, I'll try to be a little international here and there. Uh, but uh, I used to run youth corrections in Washington, DC. I inherited a very awful youth correctional uh, facility. It was just, you know, this isn't the nation's capital. It had been under uh, litigation for, with some of the nation's leading litigators for 19 years and the kids used to take their shirts off at night and stuff them in the cracks in the floor to keep the rats and cockroaches from crawling up on them and biting them at night. Uh, uh, they slept in dormitory settings, everything they did, they did in group settings. Uh, the place was just disgusting in terms of uh, sanitization. And I cannot imagine if a virus like this had appeared suddenly that my staff was going to be able to keep the place clean. It's just preposterous to believe that these sorts of um, habits that have been formed around our correctional facilities in the U.S., uh, where we are fully willing to denigrate and humiliate incarcerated people, are going to change overnight because of a virus. We're not gonna keep these places clean. 
They're places of forced uh, proximity, the opposite of physical and social distancing. Uh, um, uh, the people in them uh, are uh, medically vulnerable, they're very often underinsured, uh, have asthma. Kids, tons of the kids in my facility had asthma, which exacerbates the, the uh, symptoms of, of uh, COVID-19, heart conditions, diabetes are all well-documented higher in the populations uh, uh, that are incarcerated in America, and they are wildly disproportionately people of color in them who are disproportionately uh, suffering from COVID in communities. Um, there's been a couple of very good uh, pieces of research that have been published in the U.S., many by, by newspapers, so the New York Times has shown uh, that uh, initially the Cook County Jail, which Cook County is uh, Chicago, was one of the leading fomenters of the virus. Uh, that subsequently was replaced by the Marion County, uh, I'm sorry, by the Marion Penitentiary in Ohio, uh, which they found to be the leading um, hotspot in the United States for COVID, almost 80% of the people incarcerated in that prison were uh, tested positive and it was uh, uh, connected up to one out of five cases of positive COVID in the state of Ohio. Uh, so point number one, uh, jails plus COVID equals bad. Um, so point number two now, probation and parole. I'm gonna give a little history on probation and parole. This is where our to uh, the United States and Ireland's history overlaps a little bit. Um, probation and parole in the U.S. context uh, came to be in the mid, mid to late 1800s. Uh, in the case of uh, parole, uh, uh, it's, it's thought to have uh, initiated in Australia, traveled to Ireland, uh, where it became uh, a national system under Sir Walter Crofton, the Irish uh, system it was called. Uh, and then uh, one of the rare cases of uh, research actually influencing correctional practice, a paper was presented in uh, 1870, an influential paper uh, at the inaugural conference of the National Prison Association, which is now the American Correctional Association, uh, touting the Irish system uh, and uh, then got adopted a few years later at Elmira Penitentiary, which is thought to have had the first um, parole system in the country. Uh, initially, by the way, when, when the paper was discussed, uh, some of the people at the conference pushed back and said, uh, why should people be supervised after they get out of prison? They've served their time. We should leave them be. And uh, Crofton responded and said, well, it shouldn't be about incarcerating people. It shouldn't be about supervising them. They should be able to pick a next friend who is sort of a mentor and helper uh, when they come out of corrections. So I think that at least initially, arguably, there's certainly points of view on, on both sides, but arguably initially, both probation and parole were meant as a helping function. They were a reaction to the punitive nature of both uh, uh, things like the stocks and pillory and later the penitentiary system, which fairly quickly was abusive uh, and probation and parole were thought to be ways to sort of move people away from those systems and into something that would be 
arguably at least partially helpful. Um, that rehabilitative ethic hung on, on from the late 18, mid to late 1800s all the way in the U.S. to the, to the 1970s when it was a real pivot in U.S. Uh, penal policies uh, towards just deserts, punishment, deterrence, incapacitation, and away from rehabilitation. Part of that uh, it, uh, wrapped itself in the Southern strategy to racialize poverty issues and racialize uh, uh, crime and justice issues in ways that they hadn't been prior to then. And part of that was uh, some, uh, some uh, uh, weak research that just uh, concluded that nothing works when it comes to rehabilitating people that have run afoul of the law. Uh, both of those things hit at the same time and flourished, and, and the notions of rehabilitation uh, really died in, in American criminal justice in the, in the 1970s. Um, so it was one thing for the prison system to lose that, that those concepts of rehabilitation. They weren't really doing all that much to help people turn their lives around in prison anyway, and they could quickly adopt incapacitation and punishment and uh, uh, deterrence as their goals. Probation and parole had a little harder time because they were, if, if, if nothing else, they were all about rehabilitation, or at least purportedly. Uh, so they had to pivot, and pivot they did, uh, became much more punitive, much more surveillance focused. They started to uh, cling to notions of intensive supervision probation that would meet out intermediate sanctions, uh, electronic monitoring, house arrest. Uh, and so they started to sort of wear the armamentarium of their big brother, the prison, uh, and mushroomed inside right alongside the growth of incarceration in the U.S. It was about a five-fold growth in the prison uh, rate in the U.S. and about a four-fold growth in probation and parole. Uh, and so if you think about it, uh, there should be an inverse relationship. If probation and parole are meant to be release valves or alternatives to incarceration, uh, the more probation and parole you have, the less incarceration you should have. So they really started to become more of an add-on and a tripwire back to incarceration. Uh, so we get to now, uh, the current state of affairs is that there are 4.5 million people on probation and parole. That's twice as many people as are incarcerated in the US, more people than live in most states, and almost as many people as live in Ireland. Um, the 45% in a recent uh, research by the Council of State Governments, 45% of people in our prisons were on probation or parole when they got locked up. A quarter of the people in our prisons, and this is the biggest prison system in the world, quarter of the people in it are in not for committing a new crime, but for some technical violation of probation and parole, like missing appointments or testing dirty for drug use uh, or, or, or the like. So message number two uh, is that uh, even before the pandemic, this largest part of the system wasn't functioning particularly well, certainly wasn't rehabilitating and diverting people from incarceration uh, and had grown uh, far beyond its ability to, to function properly uh, and became a feeder system to incarceration. Interestingly, by the way, I lived through a lot of this. I, I got into this field in 1980, so a lot of the, the history of mass incarceration, you know, sort of corresponded with my time in the field. 
And I think there was a real animus to the growth of prison and jail in the United States. People were leaning into that. Politicians were building prisons with fervor and energy. Not so much with probation and parole, by the way. I, I think when you tell most elected officials in the US, and I've had plenty of conversations with them, um, they, uh, they don't even know how big probation is. They, 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 they know almost nothing about probation and parole. I think it's grown more like a weed in the yard. It's been untended and unattended to. Uh, and so now the third point, which is to sort of combine the probation and parole, community corrections, if you will, uh, with the moment of the, of the pandemic. Um, and there's a really interesting article by Beth Schwartzapfel in today's um, Marshall Project. I, I encourage you all to check out. Um, it's, uh, uh, and she starts with the case of a woman named Tammy Lewis, who's in prison in Texas. Uh, and uh, she's made parole. She's gone to the parole board. The parole board said you can be released. But before you can be released, you have to take a six-month drunk driving program. She must have been locked up for drunk driving. Uh, she was already on the wait list for that program before the pandemic occurred. She's not being released. She's still locked up. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, once the pandemic hit, the, 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 the uh, class got canceled. Um, she's now taking it, by the way, by paper. But, you know, it's a correspondence course. Why she can't do that from her home, why she has to sit in prison to take a correspondence course on drunk driving, uh, I don't know. Uh, and lest you think that Ms. Lewis's case is an isolated example, there are 15,000 people in Texas's prisons who have been granted parole and are waiting to complete some program or the other before they can be released from prison. That's about four to five times the size of the Irish entire prison population. Uh, flash over to New York. Uh, New York has the, incarcerates the second highest number of people in the country, New York State, for technical parole violations. It's about five, a uh, thousand people in right now, about 7,000 people come in every year. Again, double the size of the Irish prison population comes into New York prisons every year just for technicals, not for new offenses. Um, the, uh, in Rikers Island, where, where people wait in jail, it's the local jail, they wait to have their hearings before they go to state prison. One out of six people uh, jailed in that notorious jail uh, were just awaiting their hearings. Uh, and the first two people to die from COVID in Rikers Island, Michael Tyson and Raymond Rivera, both over the age of 50, uh, both had uh, comorbidities. Uh, uh, Michael was up for missing appointments. Raymond was up for failing a drug program, uh, not, not do crimes for either one of them. Uh, and they were the first two people to die uh, in Rikers of COVID-19, pretty likely that they caught it while they were incarcerated. Uh, it's hard to know exactly, but they both came in at a time before the virus had really hit New York and were incarcerated waiting their hearings through that time until they died. So um, sorry to be the bearer of a great deal of miserable news. Um, I'll try to end with some good news. Uh, one is that, um, the, uh, uh, there's been an unusual uh, voice of probation and parole commissioners like I was. I ran New York City probation, but now there's been 
plus probation and parole commissioners early on in March who issued this statement uh, arguing that we should stop technically violating people. We should stop having people come into office visits where they're gonna sit in rooms for hours waiting to answer the same five stupid questions that their parole officer asked them last week. We should stop doing that so that they don't sit in rooms and, and infect each other and infect parole staff. Uh, we should stop charging them fees and we should release people that we've locked up for technical violations. And that's, you know, a lot of those 50 people are current probation and parole commissioners. So for them to sign their names to that is not unimportant. Uh, and then an American Probation and Parole Association uh, uh, survey of departments around the country showed that of the, of the uh, 300 plus departments that responded, three quarters had stopped technically violating people and had stopped having office visits. Um, the jail populations in the U.S. have declined. Uh, these are idiosyncratic data. We don't have real hard studies on it yet, but in the first month, there have been a pretty substantial jail population declines. That's jails in the U.S. are mostly pretrial or very short uh, sentences. Hasn't filtered up to prison populations yet. Uh, so, for example, in New York, there's been a 38% decline in the population of Rikers Island, uh, but the, prison, the state prison population, which is a different entity, runs it, uh, is about the same as it was prior to the virus. Um, so, in conclusion, uh, uh, you know, I, we all want to go back to normal. I'd love the kids to be going back to school. I'd like to be able to go to a bar and go to restaurants and movies. Um, the, the, the corrections field is, is a space, uh, both in, in terms of jails and prisons and in terms of uh, probation and parole in the United States, uh, where we do not want it to go back to normal. Normal was terrible. Uh, normal, by the way, for lots and lots of people, particularly people of color in the United States, was already a, uh, a, a nightmare, was already an emergency. Uh, now it's just an emergency to all the rest of us, but for, for, uh, uh, for people of color, it was a daily emergency, um, and, and we, need to, we need to use this as a moment, uh, hopefully a watershed moment, where we can take a real hard look about whether technically violating anybody, frankly, not just one quarter of the prison population, but really anybody is associated with uh, public safety or rehabilitation. The research I've seen is that it is not. Uh, whether parole and probation supervision are needed at this level, or in some respects, whether they're needed at all. They started out as a helping function. They started out as a volunteer function. They started out as a more community-based function. Maybe communities should just support people when they come out of prisons with no tether back to incarceration. And maybe the billions of dollars we spend locking people back up should be used to support them in terms of their employment, their mental health, their housing, and other supports that would help them thrive when they come back to their home communities. Thank you. Thank you very much, Vinny, for another absolutely fascinating um, presentation. So our three panelists, boy, that was fabulous. Lots of questions are coming in. So I'm going to try and group the questions a little bit. So the first two that I've got are, Roseanne, more geared towards you, but both Vinny and Rosemary should feel very free to come in and, you know, 
get stuck in too. So the first question I have is from Mo Flynn. Um, Mo, I'm not sure where you are, but thank you for your question. Uh, it is, given the global issues arising in relation to older people and deaths in long-term care, it, uh, is this not the time to address the model of care itself? Uh, we've seen, we seem to have a globally over many years come to the belief that congregated care in large settings is appropriate, but we can't ignore the significant commercial investment in the sector, which drives the employment model, the care approach and the lack of cl clinical therapeutic involvement. So in other words, it's time for a fundamental reconfiguring of uh, the care model. So that's one question, Roseanne. And there's another related one, uh, which comes from uh, Declan Ledden, who's joining us on Facebook. He's the policy advisor and Trinity undergraduate. Uh, he says, I was on a call this week with Helen Clark, former New Zealand Prime Minister. She said that more investment in the human rights of older people is crucial given uh, that this crisis is a long-term one. Um, does Professor Kenny feel that there are specific recommendations that the Irish government could fast track? So Roseanne, would you start with those two? And then as I say, Vinny and Rosemary may want to come in, but I've got lots of other questions that people want to ask. So Roseanne, over to you. Thank you, yes. Um, great, great questions. Thank you, Mo, and thank you, Declan. Um, uh, the, the, we, we, we need a complete multi-sectoral review of our approach to aging generally. I, I would say that in the first instance and particularly within the healthcare sector, but not exclusively. Um, I was involved in the science, uh, the SAPIA uh, report, uh, which was um, launched late 2019. SAPIA is a science uh, advisory uh, group in Europe, uh, composed of academics um, to advise policy. So, so, there, so that, that's actually a, a fresh policy document that I could point listeners towards, which, which actually uh, embraces the, the, the spectrum of aging and how Europe should approach aging. And one of, one of the um, excellent chapters that's there is on aging in place, the evidence for benefits of aging in place for the individual, for society, but also the cost benefits of aging in place um, and it's always assumed it's much cheaper to run uh, institutional care for people with complex needs than aging in place. We've seen in the um, in mental health disability sector that this is actually not the case and, and they have championed aging in place and there's reason well, and there are other models actually elsewhere in Europe where aging in place works very well. So the first principle I would say is aging in place and how we enable aging in place. But secondly, to do that, we have to have adequately trained and valued care staff to deliver aging in place. Um, and this is something that, uh, that uh, re requires scaling up very quickly. There are, uh, if, I, if I take medicine, for example, Many universities do have a faculty for geriatric medicine, despite the fact that 70% of inpatients are over the age of 65 in the acute hospital sector, for example. And there's little paid to aging in multiple uh, specialties that you've thought, like pharmacy, um, radiotherapy, etc. You'd have thought, well, there, you know, there must be a large, there is not a large section devoted to that or dedicated training. 
Um, and, the, and many of these subspecialties in medicine, cancer therapy, um, respiratory therapy, cardiovascular therapy, You know, we, we're losing you, Roseanne. So we've just lost audio there. So uh, thank you for answering those questions. I realize you've got more to say, but I'm actually going to move on just simply because we've lost the audio. We'll try and get Roseanne Kenny back. Um, uh, so I, I've got a question here specifically for uh, Rosemary, um, or maybe Rosemary would like to start with, and then we can, uh, uh, again, open it up to others. So it's from Ahuvia uh, Kahan, who's a professor of classics uh, in Trinity. Um, and it says, without doubt, COVID-19 highlights our interconnectedness, but interconnectedness is sometimes the instrument of inequality. In an interconnected world, powerful multinationals can have better access to low-wage labor markets, political and economic elites can act more quickly and effectively to control those who lack such privilege. How can we ensure that we preserve the equity and equality of our new interconnected world? Great question. Do you want to start, Rosemary? And then Vinny, you might want to come in on this one as well. Just let me just unmute. Um, uh, it's a complicated question, and I think a really good one, and gets to really the core of, of global inequalities, and also, I think, tags into lots of debates about globalization uh, and the winners and the losers. I think what is, is important, and that I didn't really address in, in the intervention, is that when we're talking about reforms that are needed in order to respond adequately uh, to uh, COVID, it also involves private actors and multinational corporations that up until now they might be acting in certain ways whether they have supplier codes of conduct in terms of how they engage with their workers uh, might be but one example but the ways in which they engage might be motivated more by uh, reputational risk uh, because their equations or their justifications for how they operate um, uh, you know are very different from when you're coming at these issues uh, from a rights-based perspective so i think to a certain extent um, covid will open up uh, opportunities for discussions not only between states and civil society in terms of how to respond but also in terms of the broader issue of business and human rights because those really are the the big actors out there we're talking about the absence of social protections the precarity of individuals and the current economic crisis as the fallout from COVID I mean businesses are really the central and core actors I hope, can, to be honest, part of the question froze, so I hope that I, I answered, I wasn't completely off point, but. Thanks, Rosemary. I don't know if Vinny or Roseanne, it's great to have you back if you want to get in, or will we move on to the next question? Um, okay, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, this one is from uh, Sophie uh, van der Volk, um, and Sophie's question is, have any practices emerged in the US to protect rights while managing COVID-19? So I guess maybe for you, Vinny, in Ireland, the inspector is still, a reg is still in regular contact with each prison on how prisoners are being managed at this time and going into the prisons to ensure that minimum exercise is being facilitated. So Vinny, would you like to uh, respond to Sophie's question? Yeah, Sophie, there are literally thousands of entities that run prisons, jails, and juvenile facilities in the U.S. Uh, so there's no centralized answer to that. Uh, some of the places have, uh, some of the correctional systems, 
our, our correctional systems are really not known for their transparency. Um, so some of the correctional systems have really clamped up. Uh, I uh, fled Brooklyn where I live when, when the pandemic started to Lake Placid where I have a, a house. It's way upstate New York uh, in the Adirondack Mountains. And the, many uh, US uh, states put their prison systems in such rural areas because there's a lot of cheap labor and cheap land. So as it happens, there's about four prisons around here and uh, there was a recent North Country public radio story on that uh, described how county health executives in rural communities like this don't know how many cases of COVID there are in their counties because the prisons won't tell them. They won't tell them how many people have tested positive. They won't even tell them if they're testing. So if you're trying to you know, sort of prepare your hospital beds, you don't know if you're gonna have nobody or hundreds of people coming out of the prison to fill those hospital beds. So I guess my, my sad answer is no, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of good examples too. It's just like I said, there are thousands of examples to choose from uh, and there's no comprehensive look at that. So the Board of Corrections in New York City, I think is a very good example. They are publishing data all the time. They are on top of, and that's an oversight body, over the Department of Corrections. They have public hearings. Uh, they give voice to people who are incarcerated and their families. They give voice to healthcare professionals who are working in the uh, systems. And so that, that's a, a good example of a vibrant process. Still a terrible jail, but it's a vibrant process to, to have this discussion. And they're pumping out some of the best data I've seen, but it's a, it's a real crapshoot. Thanks very much. Um, again, I don't know if, 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 if Rosemary or, or, or Zan, oh, but we've got a, a question I think the whole panel might like to uh, attempt. It's from Giovanna, who's in Dublin via Sao Paulo. Uh, uh, so Giovanna's question is, I'd like to hear the panelists' experiences with the media and or policymakers around these issues. Have they been approached or tried themselves to approach the media and policymakers? How did that interaction go? Roseanne, can we start with you and, and we'll sort of work across the panel. Uh, uh, presumably, you've been working closely uh, with the uh, Department of, of, of Health, but tell us about your experience and also with the media. Okay, well, I'd start with the media, if I could, because I think it's it's a general for, for, for the three presentations. Um, and. Uh, it, 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 the, the, the media is, is, is a difficult one. The use of language has been poor by the media generally. They've referred to elders, the elderly cocooning. Uh, I mean, that, that's a policy term, but where did that come from? And what does it mean? It's so patronizing. Um, that recently, when some of the restrictions were lifted, I heard multiple media reports of letting them out allowing them to go out for one hour a day, etc. So, so the language that's being used um, to, uh, is just not appropriate with res respect to the media. And it's, it's, it's a hard one to call. We have tried to call it. In, in an, uh, I did an opinion piece with respect to that, etc. And really just reflecting on the positivity of, of, of older people, the contribution they make to uh, society, because the assumption by the media is that this is a dependent cohort. 
the very use of the language impl implies vulnerable and dependent. And that isn't actually the case. Um, they, you know, 65% of disposable income is held by those over the age of 65. It's the very same in the, U the USA. The contribution that's made to volunteering, without which many of our infrastructures uh, were, are not viable, is the are contributed to by people who are who are older so so it's so we have certainly highlighted the contribution that people make to society and the language that is being used by the media thanks uh, Roseanne um, obviously we lost you earlier just going back to those earlier questions was there anything else that you'd you'd been wanting to say I I think I covered what I wanted to say with respect to aging in place being something that we must aspire to and that, and, and that it's important that, that, that solutions are aligned with, with economics because otherwise we will get nowhere. But there's very good evidence that aging in place is aligned to economic solutions and, and you know, chimes with, with economics. And, so, and the other thing was education and training. And particularly within within all all infrastructures in our in our uh, third level institutions is really important. I want to come back to that in a minute. There's a nice question about that. Rosemary, can we turn to you on the media and policy uh, uh, question? On the policy front, I think what's really interesting about what's happening in conversations amongst international lawyers are coming back to the fact that the international framework wasn't really prepared, uh, as, as was not the domestic, it's not surprising, but that international treaties just haven't addressed the whole myriad of issues that have come up. But I think for academics, what's really important is that many of the issues surrounding marginalization and what's required there's very good research out there. Um, and so it's really about finding the strategic spaces to get that research um, in the hands of people working in those areas, much easier in the European Union because you have established uh, channels. Uh, the last point that I'll make, and I think one that, that's really quite serious that you're seeing in different, different parts of the world is the way in which freedom of expression is being pitted against public health and public order uh, so that you have whistleblowers, and we saw that in China in the very early days, uh, whistleblowers being penalized for critiquing public policy. Uh, for academics that are in the business of critiquing public policy, um, you know, it, it, it's something that, that should be um, uh, really flagged as uh, inhibiting improvements in policy. And at the same time, really important to counter and regulate fake news. So it's a tension that's out up there but something that I think needs to remain on people's radars. Thanks. Can I ask you to respond to that? Me? Yeah please. The policy, um, I don't know the extent to which you've been involved in advising your government and your interaction with the media. Yeah uh, so two things. The media if you went back 10 or 20 years on prisons and crime in, in the US, the media was the enemy. They were hyping up crime, uh, blowing it way out of proportion, uh, and really, I think, part and parcel of driving some pretty terrible public policy, uh, and they will, they will be vilified by history for it, I believe, they right, right along with pandering politicians. Uh, that, that's changed in the United States. Uh, the, the frame around corrections and public safety issues has morphed to one 
where mass incarceration is viewed as problematic, not everywhere, not universally, certainly, uh, but I would say arguably that that's the dominant media frame about incarceration in the States and the COVID virus play, fit right into that. So I've, you know, I've done a lot of media interviews. We've pitched stories to the media. We, we organized the, the sign-on letter I talked about earlier that probation and parole folks signed on to. We organized one that youth correctional administrators signed on to. Uh, and the media, the media covered that. They've covered stories about incarceration. So that's, that's been terrific. I think that's helped to some degree allowing people to use their discretion, like governors to release people early or juvenile justice administrators or things like that. I don't think we've seen yet policy changes. It's, it's just been too quick. And the fear of crime for politicians that they don't want to have another sort of Willie Horton where they release somebody and it goes badly, uh, that's, that's not going to die easily uh, in, their, in, their, in their heart of hearts. So it's, it's going to take some time. I think this may end up, one of the few benefits of this was it may end up forcing us to re-examine things. My hope is in the probation and parole sphere, we can do that more readily because I don't think they really understand how many people are on it or how many people get violated now. So they might be a little more willing to shed some of that. But we really haven't seen policy changes yet, despite some pretty good media coverage. Thanks very much, Vinny. I'm going to see if we can involve uh, somebody in our Zoom room who was part of our GHI. So Brooke Svets is a graduate student at Columbia, and she has a question that uh, she's asked, uh, 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 and I can read it out, Brooks, but it would be lovely if you actually asked your own question. You've, you've said some very nice things about the panel, so thank you for that. Uh, Brooks, are you there? Can you ask your own question? Hi. Um, can you hear me? Yes. You can. Okay, excellent. Um, sure. Um, I first, thank you all for a fantastic panel. Um, I have a question for Professor Byrne. Um, you spoke about the new meanings um, that the word solidarity has taken on in this pandemic. Um, and in addition to these new connotations, do you anticipate a different vocabulary, a different lexicon in general for human rights um, emerging from this time? Um, and I was also just wondering in general, what terms and concepts you think are best suited for analyzing and for confronting this crisis? Um, thank you all so much. This is really stimulating. Thank you uh, very much, Brooks. Um, Rosemary, over to you. Hi, Brooks. That's a, your question is exactly what I've been thinking about uh, over the past couple of days. And I think in a way that we'll end up putting a greater place on economic and social rights because of the issues around health end up having implications uh, for privileged uh, and marginalized communities when you think about the virus as the linking factor. So while it's depressing to think that it's that aspect that has to motivate how we think about solidarity, I th my thinking at the moment um, is that actually it may have implications in terms of giving a greater um, primacy to economic, social, and cultural rights that have always been the lesser sibling in the international human rights world. And I think solidarity, um, I think will always be a peripheral value because of the divided world that, that we live in. 
so it may not be that solidarity as a norm comes to have powerful impact, but the reality is that we begin to take actions based on interconnectedness might actually uh, become part of the sort of ethos uh, of governments when they're thinking about these sort of operational issues uh, in combating the virus. Thanks, Rosemary. There's another question for you, primarily from Donna Lyons. And again, I know, Donna, you're in the Zoom room. Why don't you ask your question uh, to Rosemary yourself? Um, uh, but again, the others should feel free to come in. But Donna, please go ahead. Hi, thanks so much, Jane, and to all the speakers. Um, hi, Rosemary. Uh, it was just really interesting to hear what you were saying about solidarity. We just see so much of this in the media at the moment and in academic commentaries around, will there be a big shift towards solidarity um, in order to, to prioritise socioeconomic rights? And I think you basically just answered that question in relation to, to what Brooks was asking. So my question had been, how do you feel that the human rights movement might um, change the course of, of protection of socioeconomic rights and how might the narrative and the, the terminology around that uh, change. So I, I think you have answered the question, but if you had anything else to add, that'd be fantastic. But I really enjoyed um, all of the speakers, so thanks so much. Thank you. All, all that I can really say about solidarity is, I mean, in a way I'm kind of cautious because our most recent experience is the European refugee crisis, and we all saw how solidarity played out in that context. Uh, so I, I, what I think is rather than sort of a major macro reform, what we'll see are promising signs in different sectors that really need to be addressed, but not necessarily motivated by the best, by, by the best intentions. Very much, Rosemary. Um, please go ahead, Roseanne. Just a slightly different take on solidarity in the context of what we were talking about earlier on with respect to ageism is the uh, import now of intergenerational solidarity. Um, and and uh, uh, with respect to some of the media reporting, there have, been, um, there have been instances, many instances in which almost um, youth is being pitched against uh, older cohorts as, 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 you know, as, as problems and solutions. I've, uh, I, I, I came across an article by the assistant editor in The Telegraph in the UK, if I may, Jane, just, just it, it, it highlights this very well, Jeremy Warner, where he was talking about the economic impact of COVID and he said not to put too fine a point on it, COVID-19 might even be mildly beneficial to the economy by culling elderly dependents. And we have had a number of economists in Ireland and the US speaking to freeing up the labour market by enabling younger people to get back into work, etc. Um, as though, as though um, other uh, citizens don't make a valuable contribution to the labour market as well. So I think we need to really try to, to ensure intergenerational solidarity in this climate of the pandemic. Thank you for that hugely important point, uh, Roseanne. You've actually got another question from Sarah Meehan O'Callaghan, who's joining us uh, on Facebook. She says, does Roseanne think there was a deliberate obfuscation in the language from government regarding cocooning and the advice that appeared to be mandatory when older people felt under house arrest? I don't know if you, I, 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 I think you do have views on that. 
Well, well, well I do. And, and first of all, I'd, li I'd like to say that they were recommendations. There was nothing mandatory. Um, and, but but it, it rapidly translated again through the media, so it's very difficult to know, into you must stay in, you must not go out, etc. And, uh, and, I, and I felt that, that particularly that, that cohort are, um, generally speaking, very law-abiding, you know. Uh, and and I, I was on the phone to patients and others who I really felt needed the physical activity of walking to keep them mobilizing and recommending that they went out with masks, uh, face masks, etc. And there's absolutely no question in their, in their words that I would break the law or that I would breach the, the recommendations by policymakers. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't really believe it was deliberate. I, I really believe people. This hit us. We were not prepared. That was a problem. We should have been because there were early warning signs, but it wasn't taken seriously. Was there something? Was there a deliberacy um, with respect to the nursing home policy of not documenting COVID deaths, etc., in terms of numbers and figures and well, I, I don't know, and, and only time will tell. But I think we mustn't be afraid to question what's happened. And, and our policymakers must not be afraid of that. The only way we're going to learn from this and get it right the next time is to really scrutinize what happened. No point in apportioning blame, but to learn from what were clearly mistakes that were made and to take those, those, those learning um, um, uh, experiences forward. Thanks, Roseanne. Vinny, can I just ask you, obviously you're here to talk about prisons and uh, 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 not necessarily about what's going on in the US vis-a-vis -vis, uh, older people, but have you any reflections on what you've heard Roseanne saying in an Irish context and what's playing out in New York and in the US? You know, as Roseanne was talking, what I was thinking about was the, uh, was the um, elderly folks that are in prison, you know, the older prisoners yeah. who are... Yeah the least likely to reoffend, uh, you know, just statistically speaking, they're in the US, it's 30, 40 year sentences are not at all uncommon. So many of these folks came in as teenagers. Uh, Michael Tyson's a good example. He was 18 when he got locked up and he was on parole at the age of 53 when he died in Rikers Island. And um, that again, this, as I said about all of this before, was that was preposterous public policy even before this. Um, and now it's just deadly and preposterous public policy. Uh, there are folks in, the, in prisons. The governor said he's going to release Governor Cuomo's, you know, being viewed by some as handling this well. They said he'll, he'll be releasing some uh, uh, nonviolent elderly prisoners, which means like all these people like Michael Tyson, who when they were 18 and committed their violent crime, won't be eligible. And that's most of the older prisoners we have. Mm -hmm. Those folks should be out. They should be out right now. We shouldn't yeah. be. Some people we need to be very careful about who we release. I frankly don't think that's the population we need to be very careful about who we release. If yeah. you're over a certain point, go. Mm -hmm. So that First of all, you don't get sick and die. And, and second of all, that there's room so that inside, as staff start getting sick, which they do, or staff start getting afraid, which they are, and calling in sick, whether they're sick or not, or staff's wife or husband or kids get sick, they're going to stop going to prison. And the next thing that happens and is happening is they start locking everybody down because there's not enough staff to guard them. So fewer 
people incarcerated is really important, not just for an individualistic examination, but just because we need to spread this uh, staffing and, and prison facilities out amongst a smaller group of people, because when the pandemic hits, it's too late. Mm -hmm. if you, if you, the, the head of, uh, of health at Rikers Island said a storm is coming and it hit Rikers first. So he was warning all of his colleagues. Well, if, if a hurricane's coming in your direction, you don't wait until there are 100 mile an hour winds to get the hammer and nails and boards out to board up the windows. You do it before the storm hits. Too many people are sitting and hoping that it never hits. What should be happening right now is all of those elderly prisoners, we should start moving them out. All, we should, all technical violators, they should be nowhere near our prisons and jails. They shouldn't have been before, but they especially shouldn't be now. Anybody that's got 90 to 120 days left, nothing good is gonna happen in the next 90 to 120 days that's gonna turn this person into something different than they were. Get them out of your places so that you are as ready as you can be in a compromised environment with a compromised population when the virus, not if, but when the virus hits you. And older prisoners are, are subject number one in that conversation. Thanks very much, Vinny. Uh, we can turn now to the role of the universities. Uh, there's a, a question from somebody who's in the Zoom room. So Aideen Nishi, do you want to go ahead uh, uh, and ask your question? Or I can ask it for you. Are you still with us? Aideen? Okay, I'll ask it. it. The question is, what is the role of the universities in sparking these responses? Um, how do we shift our programs to support creative and interdisciplinary action? And I think that is a question actually for all three of our speakers. Um, the role of the university, I know you touched on it, Roseanne, mm. earlier, um, but maybe uh, if we start with you um, and, and think about what we in the universities can and should be doing to respond. I, I think the university sector has been remarkable in repurposing a lot of what it was doing in response to the COVID crisis, actually. There's, there's a lot of good evidence globally with respect to that. In many ways, that's kind of the sexy bit of all of this, you know, it was dramatic, it was adrenaline rush, we're, we're, you know, and, and, and so, but, but the universities have been very good in that context. So that's the immediate response. Um, in the longer term, I think that from my perspective, uh, as well as the biological sciences uh, research uh, and, and immunology research, which will, which will go into uh, vaccination development and also different biomarker tests, etc. It's just, it's generally speaking in the context of marginalized cohorts, awareness of aging uh, in, in, I can't think of a discipline it's not pertinent to, even pediatrics, because we start to age in the womb. So, so part of what we did in Sapia was the life course approach to, to aging. So I actually cannot think of any discipline that it's not pertinent to, but our institutions are quite ageist. And, and when, you, when you try and broach this, you get very pleasant smiles, but there's very little action. So I would call um, a, a, an action call, of call for action on introducing an understanding of the aging process uh, in each of our faculties. Yeah, 
Well, obviously we would welcome that, Roseanne, um, and it's great to hear you say that. Rosemary, from your perspective, what, what role do you think, feel the universities have to play here? We can't hear you. I think Great. The universities have gotten much better at looking at issues of impact, of kind of steering colleagues to be able to access policy channels, particularly in the European level, which is the zone that I know best, uh, the extent to which the European Commission has really fostered these links. But I think networks really matter, and I think networks with policymakers matter. The problem is that the academy, in many ways, hasn't valued. The interaction with academics is usually what you do beyond what is recognized within academia in the policy community on the ground. But if you want your research to be relevant, if you want to be able to have real-time evidence that's going to speak to what's on hand, you actually have to know what people are thinking. You have to know what's happening, whether it be in the prisons, whether it be in refugee centers, whether it be within the kind of bureaucracies of, of policymaking processes. And if you're not tuned into that, you may have very good research but you're not really connecting in or the likelihood that you're going to be able to connect into the thought processes that will genuinely influence change and transformation is very low. So I think that's something that, that particularly young scholars really need to work with. How do they keep their foot out in the field so that they're actually, you know, very connected to the kinds of issues and they're picking up how things change. I mean, the one thing that really strikes me in the area of human rights is no matter what you're working on, Whenever you start talking to people who are doing it day in and day out, and not the senior people, like the people on the ground, you're all, you discover how you're always off a little bit. There's always something that you thought was major, and actually it's something really quite mi you know, minor and technocratic that is a real obstacle. But unless you, unless you really have that kind of engagement, the likelihood that you're actually going to have an impact diminishes. So I think that's really important. Uh, and, and I really think that, that, you know, the turn towards the real power that academics has have is the respect that's paid to evidence. And that is one thing that we, we do very well. But I think we need to work on this kind of the linkages between policy and I think also the way in which universities value those linkages and the people that are engaged in them also needs to change a bit because the incentive structure needs to actually encourage rather than discourage that. That incentive structure is so important as well though. Um, and again, I think maybe this the silver lining in this crisis is that we we'll, we will change those behaviors within our institutions one lives in hope um uh, but that again is for us to be lobbying for that very hard vinnie can i ask you obviously you're very proactive but in terms of you know colombia um uh you know how do you feel that the university has responded um what could you do more of uh any, any, just whatever thoughts you have on this. Yeah, Columbia dove in. I was pretty proud of the university's response to this, uh, and not just in criminal justice, sort of across the board, the School of Public Health and med medical school, law school. Uh, people were very, very active in terms of holding forums, of synthesizing research. The governor uh, was very um, reliant on Columbia experts in conversations about what policies he, sh he should take. Uh, unfortunately, not in the criminal justice sphere. Uh, 120 of us signed a letter to Governor Cuomo urging him to re release older prisoners, to do early discharges for people that were close to the end of their sentences, to stop locking up technical violators. Uh, and we got no response to that. But 
but we were in the game at least on it. Um, and, and I think that uh, as we think of, of education for, for the next uh, semester, next year, next couple of years, uh, we have to figure out how we're going to incorporate uh, uh, the marginalized populations in COVID into all of that. Uh, this is not affecting all people equally, as, as my co-panelists have, have mentioned. And we, uh, we need to, I think, as, as an as a, as a academic institution, both Columbia and in general, uh, start to emphasize that because uh, power structures don't really have a, a glimpse into that unless somebody figures out a way to put it in their face. Sometimes that's advocates, sometimes that's people who themselves are part of that, uh, that, that world, if you will, prisoners or prisoners' families. Uh, but sometimes it's us. Sometimes uh, we in academia have to step up to the plate and, and make sure our policymakers understand what's going on with marginalized populations, or at least do our share. That might be your mobile phone going off. There's I somebody turned it off. mobile. <laughs> yeah, I turned it off. Sorry. For a man that. in demand. Um, thank you very much. I'd love to go back to the Zoom room. Uh, Sahar uh, Ahmed, who is a, a, a colleague in the Trinity Long Room Hub, one of our earlier career researchers. Sahar, we, you've got a great question. Why don't you go ahead? I'd love to hear from you. Um, thanks so much. Um, hi, this is for Professor Byrne, actually. And uh, thank you so much for all your wonderful talks. They've been really, really insightful. Um, Professor Byrne, I was wondering uh, what you think about the huge crisis of migrant laborers um, as it's happening at the moment, particularly the way it's happening in India, um, especially in the last couple of days. A lot of southern states in India have basically effectively are holding migrant laborers captive with closing down trains, etc. And I mean, you're in the Gulf at the moment, so the Gulf states have also also had a history of being quite guilty of exploiting poor and brown migrant labor as well. Um, and I just think how you, what you think how this fits into the narrative and the conversation of human rights, because somehow, uh, particularly how we in Western academia talk about migrants, it almost either means migrants coming to the West or refugees in camps. Um, and how do you think this particularly marginalized and vulnerable group is going to become a part of the conversation, particularly after COVID? Thank you. So, so to, to, to understand your question, are you talking about internal migration? Internal, but also external. Um, uh, uh, particularly the kinds of internal migration that is happening within countries like India also tends to happen externally to countries in the Gulf. So, Yeah, it, it, exactly. Okay. Okay, I, I, I think I understand the scope of your question. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting um, and, and, and really disturbing a, about the Indian context is the extent to which um, the scale of it is just really staggering. Uh, but I, I, I notice um, uh, that there's been this very recent letter, which I've read of but haven't seen the direct text, from of a, over 100 former civil servants uh, really speaking out on the necessity of providing um, various forms of protection for these migrants that are having trouble passing internal borders uh, for receiving, you know, adequate protection within shelters and, and access uh, to healthcare and, and, and subsistence, etc. Um, so I think really what the internal migration is showing us is the extent to which 
we were unprepared for the pandemic and that actually what what is really required is for new structures protection structures to be put in place and what you're seeing in the gulf and i think what you're not seeing in a, in a visible level but what is happening um in some instances i mentioned the bahrain legislation where you actually see action being taken and the other area uh, where you begin to see, and again, they're minor changes, uh, but it, they're not visible, would be, say, for instance, um, corporations, when they're entering into contracts uh, with suppliers, are now adding additional guidelines uh, in terms of what their expectations are for protections in housing, for instance, space and sanitation standards. So I think what's difficult right now is it's all happening very quickly, so everything is reactive, but also we can't really see everything that's happening. But I think migration and protecting migrants has always been um, an area where uh, the, the world, um, not only individual nations, uh, falls woefully short in terms uh, of really protecting these people at the margins. Um, and I think one thing we can look that COVID may improve things, but I think actually because uh, of borders uh, and the fears that come with it, I would say that, that migrants are particularly vulnerable in this and particularly refugees where you're seeing that borders are being completely closed. Uh, so those in, that, that are fleeing from war persecution uh, are really um, not only at the margins, but being uh, completely excluded uh, from the framework of protection. So it's a rather grim answer, uh, but I think there's just a, a lot at stake here and it's not really clear how things will evolve. Thank you very much, Rosemary. And I'm failing miserably. I've just realized the time. We've already gone over slightly and partly because it's such a fascinating conversation and the questions have been fantastic. So I am gonna to have to wrap things up and I'm sorry that we don't have time to take the rest of the questions. Before we thank our three fabulous uh, speakers, um, we would love you to complete a survey. I realize everybody gets sick of doing surveys, but uh, we'll share one immediately after this. It's short. Uh, it's just to give us some feedback on how uh, this afternoon has been for you. Uh, uh, just take a couple of minutes. Also, I'd love to invite everybody uh, to our workshop next week, which is on inequality. And it was nice to end actually on that note, um, Rosemary, because that's exactly where we'll be picking up the conversation next week. Um, it'll be so Wednesday, the 13th of May at 4.30 Irish time, 11. 30 at New York time. Uh, and we've got, again, three fabulous speakers. Colm Tobin, uh, who's, of course, a professor at, uh, at Columbia, but who is also a national treasure in, in Ireland, um, a, a, a phenomenal uh, writer. Uh, Seamus Khan, who's professor of sociology at Columbia, who's been very instrumental in actually helping set up this series, and Sucheta Mahajan from JNU University in Delhi. So we'll actually be coming very much back to this conversation uh, about India. So that's on inequality uh, next week. All of these details, of course, are on the Heyman website, the Hub website. Um, uh, please uh, register. Um, there's lots of other amazing events going on, both in Trinity and in the Heyman, but given I've overrun already, I'm not gonna do big long plugs for those. Uh, but I, I really um, would encourage you to check out both websites because we have a, just a whole series of fascinating events that are very much responding uh, uh, to uh, uh, the COVID-19 uh, uh, crisis. And obviously 
it's fantastic when you can join us for those. Um, I'd like to thank you all for joining us this afternoon. The questions have been fantastic and the conversation has been remarkably fluid given that we're doing it all virtually. Uh, but of course, uh, these discussions are made by having such amazing panelists. So on all of your behalf, um, uh, 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 I'd like uh, to, to, to thank you, our audience, um, to thank the team that makes these events run so smoothly, especially Francesca, Aoife and Ellie. But above all, I'd like to thank uh, Vinnie, Rosemary and Roseanne for just three absolutely cracking uh, presentations. So if we can do that in a way, give them all a roaring... Uh, <laughs> So thank you, everybody, and stay well. Bye. Bye. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral Sands. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.